Listening Dog Media. DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. You kind of need a catalyst or a moment or a person who fires you up. Know your music and know your crowd and just enjoy yourself. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. Me and my pals were quite simply, you know, fired by punk music. And for this episode, a DJ who started a music fancy while he was at school. We had a phone box right opposite the school and Paul's mum answered the phone, you know, kind of told me to calm down. And then he comes onto the phone and says, um, listen, I'm going to be in town tomorrow. Why don't you come and meet me at Polydor Records? We'll do an interview. In 1988-19, he became the youngest radio DJ in the UK. I felt like the jammiest so-and-so in, in, in the world. He introduced Oasis at Nebworth. He was the first voice on XFM. This radio station that we should have had years ago, it sounds like it, it, it's finally going to be arriving. And hosts a massively loved Saturday night show on BBC Radio London. I'll always be termed a specialist DJ, which I'm more than happy to be called because it's all about the music for me. As cheesy as that might sound, you know, I've always thought of myself as, as a fan. Gary Crowley, welcome to How To DJ. Listen, you, thank you so much for having me. I think I'm ready to retire after that. <laughs> Gary, before heading into the box of questions, uh, let's go back to the start. Why did you start a music fanzine when you were at school? Me and my pals were quite simply fired by punk music, really. I kind of got the music bug, Chris, as a sort of seven, eight-year-old. My father and my mother split up when myself and my siblings, my brother and my sister, were very young. Sue was six, I was seven, and my brother was nine. We'd all love pop music. We were into the kind of sort of glitter glam stuff of the time. But when my mother left home and we were brought up by my father and also the amazing influence, Chris, of my Auntie Olive, bless her, I think pop music really became my thing and I kind of sort of retreated into my own little world really you know so it was all about watching Top of the Pops you know obviously listening to the radio and also buying you know the pop magazines of the time and then fast forward a couple of years my auntie Olive bought us all our own little transistor radio and that completely kind of changed everything for me it became about listening to radio and Capital Radio in London had just launched. So, you know, it was all about music. It was all about radio. And then in 1976, I'd kind of gravitated to buy in the music papers like the NME and Melody Maker and Sounds. And I started reading about this thing called punk and, you know, reading about these bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the jam and the buzzcocks. I think subconsciously, you know, I can't speak for my pals, but for myself, Chris, I think I was kind of waiting for something like that to happen. Something that sort of felt as though it was mine. You know, I had a very cool auntie and uncle who were into the mod thing back in the 60s. I spoke to my auntie Christine about this last week. When they used to come over to our flat, Chris, 
I would literally kind of put them in the corner and interview them about, you know, what it was like being a mod, you know, the clothes, the music, the nightclubs. So I think that I was waiting for something like punk to happen. And, and when it did happen, I wanted to get involved in some way. And that was the great thing about punk. It kind of encouraged you to get involved. Now, the obvious way to do that was to form a band. But I had absolutely no musical know-how or talent whatsoever. We tried to form a band at school about a year previous to that. One guitar between uh, 12 potential members of this band who were called Midnight. Thankfully, that didn't progress any further. But the other way to get involved was to start a fanzine, you know, because we'd seen Sniffing Glue magazine. We'd started buying that at the record shops that we were frequenting, like Rough Trade over in West London and Virgin Records when they had a shop on Marble Arch. So we basically hijacked our school magazine and turned it into a fanzine. And my very first concert was... A pretty lucky one, really. It was the jam and the boy support in at Battersea Town Hall. I've got the poster behind me. And the best move I, I made that night was ripping that off the wall and taking it home. But, you know, that concert just absolutely just changed everything for me. A bit like getting that radio a few years previously. I just wanted to kind of get involved. And I can remember us travelling back from Battersea, back to northwest London, to Paddington, Edgware Road, and, and just talking about, you know, what could we do? What could we do? I know what we could do. We could start a fanzine. And that's what we did. How old were you? I would have been 15, as would have been, you know, most of my uh, pals. We had a very, very cool teacher, Chris, a guy called Dave Meaden. He was our English teacher. In, in actual fact, to kind of bring it full circle, I was doing an event over at the uh, the exchange in Twickenham and we had a little bit of Facebook messenger, you know, banter uh, going on. But he actually turned up at this event that I was doing and I hadn't seen him since um, I'd left school in 1978. It was just so lovely to see him, Chris. He was such a lovely, positive influence. And I've been so blessed, Chris, to have you know, certain people in my life who have guided me this way and, and, and pushed me that way and given me a little bit of advice about that. And to sort of see him was really quite emotional. So, yeah, 15 years of age. I mean, I couldn't have been a better age, really, to kind of experience all this excitement going on. And also the other thing where I think I was incredibly lucky, Chris, was that I lived in the centre of London on an estate on Listen Grove, it's still there, the Listen Green Estate. And school was literally a five, 10 minute walk. And, you know, talk about being in the right place at the right time, Chris. So 1977, punk explodes. We want to get involved. We decide we're going to do a fanzine. We go and see the jam. I notice in a music fact file in Melody Maker about the jam that John Weller's phone number and he was the band's manager. It was Maybury 64717. I still remember it now. And I called it up. We had a phone box right opposite the school. And I called it up one school day lunchtime. And Paul's mum answered the phone, you know, kind of told me to calm down. Speeding, you know, 20 to the dozen. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'll get Paul for you. I'll get Paul for you. 
And then he comes onto the phone and, and again, you know, bless his cottons, he, he, he says, um, listen, I'm going to be in town tomorrow. Why don't you come and meet me at Polydor Records? And, you know, we'll, we'll do an interview. So me and Chris Clum, you know, dutifully made the journey down from Edgware Road down to Oxford Street, 17 to 19 Stratford Place, Polydor Records. He turned up with his girlfriend, Jill. So this would have been sort of summer 1977 and proceeded to give us an hour, an hour and a half of his time. And Paul's gone on to be one of your closest friends. Well, you know what, Chris? It's funny because I think, you know, people sometimes sort of think, oh, they're in the coffee shop, you know, blowing the froth of a cappuccino a couple of times a week. Not really like that. I mean, he doesn't live too far from where I live. So I probably see him about, you know, once a month. We might have a coffee and a catch up. I mean, he's got a, you know, a large family now and, and he's got grandkids, I think I'm right in saying now as well. But I've always been a fan and, you know, I've never wanted to kind of get too close because I want to kind of protect that in a way, really. That feeling of of, of being a fan, you know, wanting to kind of hear what he's up to has never diminished you know, with the passing of time. But yeah, I mean, I'd say pals with a small P and that's just the way that I like it. You know, he, he's he's become, you know, one of our most sort of vital artists in a way, really. I mean, he, his work ethic is something that, you know, never ceases to amaze me. And do you know what, Chris, thinking back to that, that first interview, that first meeting in, in the press office at Polydor Records, you know, back in 1977, I can remember him asking us what we were listening to. He was telling us what he was listening to. In fact, I remember he had a bag of records that he'd bought from a shop in, in Soho, a bag of reggae, 12 inches. And that's something that even now, when, you know, I bump into him, have you heard this? You know, what are you listening to? You know, oh, no, I love that. And that feeling, you know, being a fan, that with him is something that has never, never changed, you know. And it does change with some, but he's still got it. And actually, you know who else has still got it, Chris? Is Elton John as well. Going down the other end of the, the, the musical spectrum, that's always one of the things that I've always liked about Elton in a way, really. He's like, what are you listening to? Have you heard this? You know, he kind of wants to sort of turn you on to um, what he's loving. And Paul's definitely got that in spades. Is Elton a, a pal with a capital or small p? <laughs> Do you know what? I've been lucky enough to interview him a couple of times. No, I wouldn't call him a pal, but... I mean, I haven't told too many people this, but the first time that I ever met him, Chris, was summer of 1984, I think it was. I was one of the presenters of a Saturday early evening magazine pop show called Earsake, along with Nicky Horn and a lovely lady called Leslie Ann Jones. It was kind of like the programme that sort of followed on from The Tube until The Tube came back for its second series. The programme had been on air for a couple of months and then all of a sudden they started sending me around the world almost, you know, to interview people. We used to have a slot where we'd have a guest reviewing the week's new releases, videos, if you like. And anyway, cut long story short, I was sent over to Nice to interview Elton, who would sort of be, you know, rocking up at a very palatial house. I've got a vivid memory of meeting him for, for the first time. And, you know, he's very, very charming. And, and again, that memory of, of, of him being really 
clued up, really up to speed about um, what was going on in music and enthusing about what he was liking, you know, and I love that. A lot of my favourite DJs have got that, and um, I, I think that's super important. Gary, back to the fancy and where that took you. It was to the NME first, wasn't it, before Capital? As a teenager at the NME, were you intimidated by the famous writers around you? No, I thought that I died and and and, and gone to heaven because I I I really had grown up, you know, reading, especially in '76, you know, '77. I got the job at the NME at the beginning of 1979. So you know, all of those guys and girls who worked there, the photographers. I mean, you know, to actually meet them, you know, to kind of be in their orbit was something that really was the stuff of dreams. I mean, th there was one job before the enemy, Chris, where I was the office boy for a record company called Decca. This was in late summer 1978. I decided through doing the fanzine and through meeting various PR people and obviously interviewing bands as well. And we were so lucky, Chris, we interviewed The Clash. I mean, I could talk about Joe Strummer until the cows come home, like our mutual friend Gideon Co. Generation X we did as well. The Sex Pistols literally lived a few doors down from the school. So I knew that I wanted to kind of work in music. And um, I got a job at Decca Records, who were probably the most unhip record label in 1978. But it couldn't have been a better job because the offices were in the West End, Great Marlborough Street. And part of my, my job was going around and delivering packages. Maureen O'Grady, who was this lovely, lovely lady, who was the, um, the press officer, who'd been a very, very successful, very cool young journalist. She didn't interview the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, I just worshipped the ground that she walked on. I always remember she said that uh, she thought I was the fastest office boy that they'd ever had. So it meant going to places like The Enemy and, and other music papers and, you know, TV companies and video makers and all that sort of thing. So through going up to, to The Enemy and, you know, Danny Baker was on the reception then um, and, and sat alongside two lovely ladies called Fiona and Val. And on one visit, after I'd been sort of popping my head around the door for, um, you know, a couple of months, Val and, and Fiona said, listen, we want to have a chat with you. Danny's going to become a full-time writer for The Enemy. Would you be interested in replacing him and becoming a, a, a receptionist? Now, my accent at this time, Chris, has to be said, was as thick as one of those old London peace super fogs from the 1950s. In fact, they had a sign above where I sat on the reception at The Enemy, which said, the world's loudest receptionist. <laughs> it's funny thinking about it now, but me as a receptionist is pretty kind of psychedelic, a pretty surreal thought, really. But I couldn't have been in a better place. I mean, um, you had the likes of Nick Kent, Charles Sean Murray, um, Paul Morley, Ian Penman, Tony Parsons, Julie Birchall. I'd only been there for a week. And Tony came in and said, listen, I've got you a little welcome um, to the NME present, you know, and proceeded to hand me a copy of Tony and Julie's book, The Boy Looked at Johnny, which I've still got. I mean, Neil Spence, who was the coolest of guys, he was the editor. I mean, this was on the first day, Chris, I've forgotten about this. He pulled me into his office to kind of basically welcome me to the job and tell me what the job entailed, which was basically, Gary, you know, you're going to be the face of the NME 
people, you know, walking in, um, you know, we need you to sort of be courteous and da 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 da. And he then kind of reached down underneath his desk and pulled up this pair of very cool looking sort of tasseled Dr. Martin loafers. So this is 1979, two-tone has exploded. And he said, these are a welcome present to the enemy. And I, I just, I always remember sort of thinking, going home on, on the bus that night, is it going to be like this every day, you know? <laughs> but it was a great time. Little did you know then, Gary, that uh, things were going to get even bigger, possibly even better. You were the youngest ever voice on uh, Capital. How did you get the gig on Capital Radio? So after I left the enemy, Chris, I basically joined the guy who at that time, and he's still a really, really good pal of mine, a guy called Clive Banks, who was probably the coolest radio and TV promotions man of the late 70s, you know, going up to the mid 1980s. I mean, he had Elvis Costello, he had The Who, he had The Jam. That was an important reason for me joining him. He was also the promotion man and also the publisher for The Pretenders. So he basically said, listen, why don't you come and work with me? And a lovely lady called Hilary Shaw, who was his assistant. And it was through working for Clive and going up to places like Radio One and Capital and Radio Luxembourg that I started to meet these producers. And I know through listening to your DJ chats, Chris, Bob Harris spoke very affectionately of a lovely, lovely fellow at Radio One called Jeff Griffin. I know through John Peel's um, encouragement, Jeff was his first producer. And Jeff was the guy who kind of got me into compare Radio One's in concert. So this is 1980 now, and I'm working for Clive. And Jeff said, look, I want someone to compare these in concerts, but with some of the newer, some of the younger bands. You know, Pete Drummond will continue to do, you know, some of the more established acts. And these in concerts, Chris, were done from the Paris Theatre. And um, I said to Jeff when he asked me, of course, I bit his hand off. Would you mind if I played some records as the public were coming in and also, you know, during the interval? Because they would have two bands normally. And it's funny because a pal of mine who came along to one of those early shows actually sent me a photograph of me on stage. And I absolutely, you know, loved doing that. So that was the first time that I actually started playing records. And then I would actually introduce the acts. And, and, and what an exciting, you know, time for bands. I mean, I was so lucky to introduce, you know, the likes of, Dex's Midnight Runners, The Projected Passion Review, U2 I introduced, The Jam I introduced. How's this for a bill? Depeche Mode and supporting them, Talk Talk. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, talk about the stuff of dreams. And one of the fellas who I was actually lucky enough to meet was a really nice guy who was a producer at Radio 1, based in Manchester, actually, a fella called Tony Howe. And Tony Howe called me one day at Clive's office. Now, I thought he wanted to speak to Clive. So he said, no, 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 I, I want to speak to you. He'd recently jumped ship, Chris, to Capital. He said, I want you to come up and, um, you know, see me at Capital for a cup of tea. So this would have been the beginning of 1982. And I think Joe Sanderlands, who was the head of Capital at the time, said, listen, we want some new 
voices on the station. And Tony had, uh, you know, remembered meeting me and we had a bit of a chat and he said, I I think you could do a really, really good radio program and which was kind of news to my years because, again, you kind of forget in a way, really, but early 1982, Chris, to have a strong regional accent was still something that was incredibly rare. As far as London is concerned, there was Danny Baker who was doing some little TV bits and pieces, but as far as radio was concerned, it was kind of pretty unheard of. So I kind of went in over a couple of weeks. We used to kind of do these dummy radio shows. Honestly, Chris, I thought this isn't going to go anywhere. It sounds awful. It sounds absolutely awful. And then after one run through, he said, you've got a show, kid. We're going to start in a month. And my family, my dad was kind of like, yeah, all right, Gary, you know, and I don't think he actually believed it until we actually did the first radio program. And again, A very exciting time for music at that time, Chris. You know, 1982, you've got the likes of Haircut 100, Aztec Camera, Echo and the Bunny Men. You've also got all this exciting new music that, you know, was kind of being called rap music coming in from America. And, you know, I was on top of all of that and was in a very, very fortunate position. Because Tony had said right from the very beginning, I said to him, am I going to be able to choose the music? And he said, I promise you, kid, you will choose the music. You know, as long as there's no swear words in it, you can choose the music. And it's something that he stuck to and and, and touch wood, you know, all these years later, it, it's still sort of something that I've been very lucky to have been, um, you know, on the other side of. And, you know, I just grabbed the ball by the horns, really. It it, it was so exciting. Did you instantly feel like a star, Gary? No, I I didn't feel like a star. I I felt like the jammiest so-and-so. I mean, you know, the nice thing, looking back, is through working with Clive and even, you know, the enemy before that and also the early days with Decca is that, um, and you'll get this, there was always a lot of banter you know, kind of going around. And, and and I think one of the things that I can lay at Clive's door was not to take it sort of too seriously and to enjoy it as well. I mean, if somebody had said to me, you know, that summer, I've been on air for about three or four months already, that fast forward to, you know, the end of 2022, and, you know, I'd still be sort of hanging on in there and still doing this. I mean, I would have said two words that I won't say. <laughs> There's no wonder, by the way, that you're known as the nicest guy in radio. I've got to say that now. Oh, stop it. You sweet talker. Right, into the box of questions. Okay, five picks from 45 in this record box here. All the questions are on 45 sleeves. I'll pick one out when you say when. When? What is the craft of being a DJ, Gary? Jesus. I can only speak for myself. I mean, my radio heroes, Chris, were always people like John Peel and Janice, Janice Long, Peter Young, who we sadly lost. He went on to become a really, really good friend of mine. I suppose that um, I'll always be termed a specialist DJ, which I'm more than happy to be called because 
it's all about the music for me. As cheesy as that might sound, you know, I've always thought of myself as a fan. And, you know, the DJs that I listen to are the ones who you can tell that they're loving the music and you're hearing new stuff. So that's got to be my answer for that. So, you know, enthusiasm and honesty, um, a passion. When that capital thing started, it became, I guess, like a runaway train. You were everywhere. Your face was everywhere, as well as obviously your voice. You hosted a night at the WAG Club. How was that? It's funny because I've been on air for a couple of months, Chris, and all of a sudden the phone started ringing where people were asking whether I was available or interested in doing, you know, club nights. And of course, Back in 1977, Chris, for about three years, it was all about going to see bands. It was all about going to see gigs. 1980-81, you know, the spotlight was kind of more about the dance floor. You know, then it was about going to clubs. And um, a lot of music of that time was, you know, beginning to kind of reflect that and be infused with that sort of sensibility. So the first club that I did on a regular basis, Chris, was this amazing suburban club out in South Paro called Bogarts. And, you know, we decided to call it the Tuesday Club, which was the original name of my first radio show, because I wanted that kind of feeling that, that it had like a club, you know, the same people kind of turning up, that it was, you know, personal. You know, all these memories are kind of sort of flying around as I'm talking to you. But I told my daughter this um, a, a little while ago, when I first started, and she just absolutely, you know, poo-pooed this. Yeah, all right, Daddy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But we used to get so many letters, Chris. I mean, sackfuls of, of letters. I so wish that I'd kept all of those letters because they were so enthusiastic and evocative at the time. And a lot of them from girls. I mean, girls with, you know, lovely names like Beatrice Beetle, who I'm still really, really good friends with. Laura Lee Davis, who used to write in and sign her letters as Nutty Lee Davis from New Malden. She was a Madness fan, obviously. The Biggin Hill Haircut crew. So I knew that the programme was kind of beginning to kind of have a bit of an impact and connecting, which was lovely. So I started getting offered club gigs and Bogarts was first, Chris. Bogarts was the most amazing night. It ran for a couple of years. I mean, we were literally around the corner from where, you know, Wham came from, Bushy, George and Andrew. So they would be regular attendees. You would also get, you know, a lot of the West End trendies kind of coming in, you know, a lot of people who would frequent the um, WAG club. But bands, I mean, you know, Paul Weller, Mick Talbot absolutely loved it. I've got a vivid memory of them doing a PA for me. And if you can call it a PA, because a lot of alcohol had been imbibed. But I remember Paul Weller pulling me aside and saying, you know, this is our audience. This is the style council he's talking about. You know, this is our audience. It was a lot of suburban kids who were postmen, who, who were secretaries, not only from Northwest London, but also kids making the journey over from Hackney and from South London. It was just a really lovely kind of pure pure night it was almost like a youth club disco chris and we used to get a lot of the guys who would come up and girls from the wag club one of them being ollie o'donnell who was one of the guys who ran the wag and he said we want you to do exactly what you do here for us at the wag 
So, yeah, we started, you know, another night there. And the WAG was a very, very special club. I don't know how many of your listeners ever got the chance to 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 pay it a visit. I mean, it had a good old run. I mean, I think it was open for, you know, something like 20 years. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me it was more. But it just had a very, very, you know, kind of cool management, you know, a great sort of approach to the DJs, to the bands that they put on. I've got some fantastic, you know, amazing memories of, of the WAG. I mean, you'd go in there on a Thursday or a Friday night and, you know, you would see George Michael over there or Malcolm McLaren over there. In fact, my favourite memory of the WAG club is taking a girl who I went out with for about five years. She's still a really, really good pal, a girl called Paula. On our first date, we went there and I remember walking up to the door. I'd already been in there a couple of times and Winston and you know, one of the other bouncers kind of ushered us in. You went up the stairs and then, you know, you would kind of sort of see, you know, the great and the good of who was kind of making music and and, and also, you know, as far as fashion was concerned. You know, everybody seemed to be under 25 or something. And I can just remember that first night with Paul, I've got this beautiful girl with me who I'm sort of, you know, I'm already in love with, I think. And Nick Hayward's over there and Edwin Collins is over there and Gary Kemp is over there and you know, everybody says hello. And, and I just remember us walking right down to the other end of the club, which overlooked, you know, Gerrard Street, Chinatown. And I'm with this beautiful girl and, and, and just thinking it's not going to get any better than this. And it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question two from the box. Say when. Wait. <laughs> What's the most famous you've ever felt? <laughs> oh, gee, I mean, I'm blushing here. I remember once when I was at Capital, Chris, when I joined, I said to my boss, Tony Howe, you know, Smash Hits is, you know, selling hundreds of thousands of copies a week. And I said, you know what we should do, Tony? We should do these kind of disco afternoons aimed at an under 18s audience and get, you know, some of the bands of the time to come along and do a PA, a personal appearance. And, you know, we did those for a couple of years. And and it's probably the nearest that I'll ever get to being in the Beatles A Hard Day's Night. But there was one afternoon where we'd had an event at the Lyceum Ballroom uh, just off the Strand. And we would have had Wham! and, you know, Haircut One, you know, all these you know, kind of bands who really had scream appeal. And I've just got a memory of leaving the venue with my sister and her boyfriend at the time, Stephen, and he was going to give us a lift to Northwest London. And Steve had a mini that was parked on the Strand. And I've just got a memory of being chased down the Strand. My sister, absolutely in hysterics that this was happening, um, Steve getting very, very paranoid that his car was going to be, you know, dented. So that's probably the time that, that I felt the most famous. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. We were expecting, you know, pre to that news, we were expecting for there to be a real ballyhoo about, you know, the, the launch of the station. I mean, I don't take it for granted, Chris, to still have that couple of hours and to have that freedom to choose the oldies, to choose, you know, the new stuff that I'm loving. 
is something that, that's very, very precious. Uh, back into the box for question three. Okay. Now, when do you wish you'd said no? Um, do you know what, Chris? I mean, I don't know if this answers the question for you or not, but I'd been at Capital Radio for about three or four years. I had an absolutely fantastic time. But Tony Howe, the guy who had sort of brought me in, was about to leave. They were making some things difficult for me to do, kind of work-related things that I wanted to do. And I decided to sort of jump ship. And um, a few people said, oh, you're going to regret this. And I went to Radio London. But I had a fantastic time at Radio London and, again, was given that kind of freedom. So I don't know whether that answers the question for you, really. Gary, I'm going to say yes, it does. And I think it's a credit to you that you've made a lot of good life decisions. Well, it's funny, Chris, because um, fingers crossed that this is going to come out. I'm kind of working on something with a writer at the moment. So there's been a lot of looking back over you know my time sort of doing this. And um, I, I really cannot think of any kind of major regrets, to be perfectly honest. You know, so um, personal life-wise, I mean, that's another story. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> So are you saying that you're writing a memoir? Well, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I mean, it sounds so funny saying that, Chris. And, and honestly, I can't help but, you know, smile when I hear that. But yeah, I mean, you know, fingers crossed, that will be the end goal. Well, I think anyone who's got this far into this podcast will think that's a very good idea because your stories are incredible, Gary. Well, in the 90s, you did a Sunday show on BBC Radio London. And then you were the first voice on XFM. Tell me about the beginnings of X. When I think about XFM, a memory that I've got is back in 1984, Chris, being very, very lucky enough to go to Los Angeles on holiday with a pal of mine, Pedro. And I can remember us picking up the car at LA airport and, you know, straight away putting on the radio and going up and down the dial. And the choice was just absolutely mind-blown. Why haven't we got a station that just plays soul music? Oh my God, what's this? K-Rock? I mean, K-Rock was kind of like this radio station in 1984, Chris, that was playing all the music that I was loving, that, you know, Peely would have been playing, that Janice would have been playing on the evening session, but playing this stuff during the daytime. And, um, you know, it's sounding absolutely amazing. So you would hear, you know, New Order and you would hear Echo and the Bunnymen, um, Depeche Mode. I mean, all these amazing groups. And I've just got a vivid memory of that time. Actually, we called the radio station when we were there. And um, their mid-morning DJ was a British guy called Richard Blade. And um, I can remember him picking up the phone and I said, Hi, Richard. My name's Gary. And um, and listen, we're on holiday from London, but we are loving your program. We love what your station is about. We're loving the music. And he said, what's your surname? He said, are you the Gary Crowley who writes a column for Record Mirror? And I went, yeah. How do you know that? He said, my mother sends it to me on a weekly basis from Torquay. But the point that I'm trying to make, Chris, is that it took a long time coming. But, you know, I think XFM was basically built around the same kind of framework, really, a radio station that is showcasing, championing, you know, new music from the UK. The first time that I heard about it 
was um, doing the Sunday afternoon show on GLR. We used to have a revolving sort of squad of journalists who would come in to the station. Steve Lamack and Laura Lee Davis and Chris Roberts and Peter Thedes, Ian Gittins. Steve was doing a show on Q102, which was an indie pirate serving London. And of course, out of that came XFM. And of course, you know, once I'd heard about that, I thought, oh my God, it sounds like it's coming. You know, this radio station that we should have had years ago, it sounds like it, it, it's finally going to be arriving. So yeah, you know, got to meet Sammy, um, Sammy Jacob, who was the main guy, along with Chris Parry, of course, um, you know, the Cures manager. And they said, listen, we'd love you to come and present the mid-morning show. And I didn't need to be asked twice. Absolutely jumped at that chance. Everything is gearing up for the launch of XFM. And then, you know, this is a Monday morning. And then on the Sunday morning, I remember being in bed. I was staying at my girlfriend's over in Wimbledon at the time. She was away at a conference and uh, she called, the, you know, the landline kept ringing. She called at about seven o'clock in the morning and said, listen, put the TV on. Um, you know, Princess Diana has been involved in a car crash uh, and it looks as though it's fatal as well. So um, we were all called into XFM later on that afternoon. And there was a, a, a speech that was kind of sort of written for me, which I read out. And then it was MC5, kick out the jams. And then Eric Hodge, you know, began with the um, breakfast show. But um, we were expecting, you know, pre to that news about Princess Diana, we were expecting for there to be a real ballyhoo about, you know, the, the launch of the station, because um, it was the final license that was going to be granted for about three years or something. And in the end, I mean, I, I can remember a Swedish film crew turning up and I think they came into our building by mistake because they were doing a news piece about Princess Diana and, and were actually looking for the Channel 4 building, which was further along Charlotte Street. So it basically, the station started very, very quietly, but I've got some wonderful memories of that time, Chris. You know, it, you know, to quote the old Dickens quote, it really was the best of times and the worst of times because for a while, it really did feel like the lunatics had taken over the asylum. You know, you had Ricky Gervais coming in and out of all the radio programs, you know, kind of taking the mickey like only Ricky can. He's got this lovely, wonderful sort of take on the world. I mean, I've got some brilliant memories of the playlist meetings. And um, yet for a while, it was really, really exciting. It felt like we were doing something new, something different. And then sadly, about seven or eight months, the, you know, there were a couple of radar figures, the listening figures that show you how many people supposedly are listening to the station, to, to programs. And I think that the backers of XFM kind of bottled it, really. And then, you know, Capital ended up buying it. And I left not long after and luckily got my big toe back in the door at GLR, which I think had become London Live at that time. And now Saturday nights on, it's now called BBC Radio London again. And you sound, Gary, like you're enjoying being on the radio as much as, if not more than ever. I do. I mean, I don't take it for granted, Chris, to still have that couple of hours and to have that freedom to choose the oldies, 
to choose, you know, the new stuff that I'm loving is something that that's very, very precious to me. The only thing that I miss that we had prior to COVID was I had a program called My London, an interview program. And, and that's something that I absolutely loved doing. You know, it, it, it was a kind of mishmash of Desert Island Discs with a little bit of Robert Elms's Listed Londoner you know, inviting a guest to choose six tracks that ignite memories of the capital. And, you know, when that was stopped, because obviously we stopped having people coming into broadcasting house, you know, that's the programme that I miss doing. You know, I'm thankful I've got the new music programme, which is great, but I need to pull my finger out and come up with another idea for an interview programme. Gary, your compilations have been a huge success, haven't they? It's something that has kind of come late to me I mean, the first one came out of a, um, an online radio program that myself and a really good pal of mine who actually worked on the old GLR show, a guy called Jim Lahat, we used to present together called Gary Crowley's Punk and New Wave program. And we suggested to Demon Records that we felt that there might be a compilation box set in um, some of the stuff that we were playing, some of the you know not so obvious stuff. Thankfully, Chris, that did well. and then. I said to the lovely fellow at Demon, Ben, I said, listen, I've got the obvious follow-up to this. It's an album that, you know, will put the spotlight on a lot of the records that I was playing on Capitol back in the 80s. You know, that was Lost 80s. And then after that, the next idea, you know, the next sort of follow-on was obviously one that kind of puts the spotlight on the records that I was loving, the less so obvious records, you know, and also playing on GLR and XFM. And that's the latest one. That's the Gary Crowley Indie 90s playback compilation. Into the box for question four. When? <laughs> How do you plan your sets? So that would be, I guess, for a club night and for a radio show. Okay, well, let's start with the radio show. And, and, and the show that I'm presenting at the moment has a pretty sort of rigid format, really. So the first hour is essentially oldies, but we'll play three favourite new releases and then going into the next hour it's something that we call the mega mix where we'll celebrate an artist or a genre of music or maybe a filmmaker who uses you know music um, effectively and then we'll start playing our our favourite music as we head towards um, BBC introducing in London but I mean as far as the first couple of records it's really starting with sort of something up-tempo, something that you're hoping that, that's going to grab the listener by the ear and, you know, make them want to, you know, stay alongside. And that's something that was um, really sort of instilled in me by, um, by Tony Howe when I joined Capital. I mean, it's funny, I remember listening to Bob when you had him on the programme and, and, and he was talking about Jeff Griffin and, you know, Jeff's influence with him as to what you should be thinking about when building a radio programme and Tony's advice, very, very similar to Jeff's really, which I guess is that sort of, you know, tried and tested BBC way of doing things. As far as, you know, DJing in clubs, which I do kind of very rarely now, it's funny actually, Chris, sort of thinking back, I've DJed at a lot of friends' weddings. I always say that my track record as far as, um, you know, couples who have stayed together after I've DJed for them, isn't that great? So be very careful what you wish for. 
but as far as DJing in a club is concerned, and we're not not too dissimilar really to that approach with what we do on the radio show, which is to start with you know a couple of out and out bangers, if you like, just to kind of get everybody out there, and and then you know to kind of sort of slightly you know mix it up and also chuck in you know what I like to call curveballs. Yeah. Read the room, I suppose. All right, Gary, your final question from the box. Wayne. What would you like your legacy to be? Do you know what, Chris? I mean, talking to you, you know, looking back, if somebody had told me when I was 17, 18, that I would have ended up working in radio for all these years, I mean, I just would not have believed them. Um, I consider myself incredibly lucky. I do not take it for granted, as we mentioned a little bit earlier on. My legacy, um, he turned me on to some good stuff. In you know, the last few years, you can present a show now and you can instantly gauge what people are, are liking and what they're commenting on as far as, you know, social media is concerned. You know, getting that tweet or getting that Facebook post where somebody says, oh my God, Who's Leo Waters that you've just played? Oh, you know, what, what, you know, how can I get hold of that Phaser Days record? That kind of tingle of somebody liking something that you like, that has never, ever diminished. And, and that still gives me exactly the same buzz. I get that. Yep. I think that's the biggest buzz. One final question for you, Gary. It's the end of the world. And you, Gary Crowley, have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? <laughs> okay, I'm going to think back to my early teens and first getting the um, music bug and it really going up a few gears. And, and that's really when I got into the Beatles, Chris. I, I discovered them through an episode of a fantastic documentary series called All You Need Is Love, which the filmmaker Tony Palmer made. And honestly, life was not the same after watching that. So I'd have to choose a Beatles record. And you know what? Again, as cheesy as it sounds, I just think it's such a lovely, poignant song. And, and, and you know, when I do shuffle off this mortal coil, I've said to my other half, I've said to my daughter, this has got to be played. I don't want a dry eye in the house. <laughs> it's going to be John Lennon's In My Life. I just love the reflective, kind of melancholic slight feel of that. So that's number three. Number two, I mean, we talked about punk, new wave, and how important that was as far as, you know, igniting my musical direction. So I think just for the, the, the kind of rush, really, I'm going to have to say the jam and in the city, there's a thousand things I want to say to you because I can remember hearing Peely play that for the first time and, you know, doing a double take, you know, really, you know, waiting for morning to come so I could get down to Gilgay's, my old record shop on um, Church Street off the Edgware Road, so I could go and buy it. And as far as record number one, for my money, Chris, the most joyous celebratory record that has ever been made. And if it is ever played in a club, when I'm not DJing, if I'm in the bar or if I'm in the toilet, I'm out of there and I'm onto the dance floor and it's Candy Staten and Young Hearts Run Free. Just life affirming. Gary, thank you so much. What a life. What a career. 
And that was How to DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>